Galatians 3, beginning in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father, your word is holy and true, instructs and corrects, reproves, trains in righteousness. May it do that this morning. By the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's so good to worship the Lord. It's so good to sing the same songs and hymns again and again. One week is enough to do damage to our hearts, to our bodies, our minds, our souls, to just live this life, to go through a week apart. It's so good to get back together again and worship our God, and sings these great songs about the gospel. We need this kind of restoration, because the world is damaging. Our lives have hardships and heartaches. Our hearts are deceptive, and they lead us astray. There's a repetition to the weekly gathering that we have every Sunday morning. We're really singing the same songs week after week to different tunes, different words, but it's the same song. We come to different passages in Scripture, and there are different doctrines, but it leads us back to the same truths again and again. Galatians is a repetitive book. It's deep. It's logical. It follows a flow of an argument. And I don't mean to say that the portion that we come is trivial or indifferent to the rest of the book. It is significant in the argument Paul is making, and each word has has substance. But the end of the story is, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners, to pay the price for our sin. And we receive that gift by faith and not by works of the law. Because we go through the trauma of a normal week, we need to be reminded of this truth again and again, week after week. And so we open up the book of Galatians to hear the same message that we've been hearing for weeks on end. The gospel saves sinners. We need this passage of Scripture in Galatians because it identifies for us the scope of God's redemptive purposes in history. 
It identifies that everything, as it were, were, is being funneled down to a crucial moment in history, namely when the Son of God appears. We need this passage of Scripture because it takes that big scope of the redemption that God has worked out over the course of thousands of years, and it applies it to us personally and helps us remember that there is a time in our life before and after Christ. And the transition moment is as significant as the transition between death and life. Objectively, this passage tells us of the moment of substantial transition in what has been revealed to mankind. Subjectively, this passage tells of our path in coming to Christ. Two eras in our life. These eras are described variously in the New Testament. They could be described as death and life, old man and new man. Here it is described as being under the law or as being sons of God. And so we need this message to help us rejoice in the good news of the gospel, of what God has done for us, to help us understand the reality of what God has done in the scope of the history of the world, We need this text because it is intended to put a boundary around us that keeps us from slipping back into the old way of living. There's a new era that has come in world history and in personal history. And this text is here for us to keep us from slipping back into the all-too-easy trap of legalism or law-keeping, which says that it is on my shoulders to save myself. It is on me and my ability and my efforts and my do-gooding to save myself. This guards us by informing us what has happened to us and by telling us what God has done in the world. It effectively tells us not to get into the time machine and travel backwards into the way of doing things under works of the law. And it tells us to live in the present age, which is an age in which Jesus Christ has appeared, has paid the penalty for sins, and calls all people everywhere to repent and receive the gospel by faith and not by works. The temptation is all too real in our hearts to measure our success before God on the basis of law-keeping. We think he thinks about us, about how good we are doing. Are we doing good enough? Are we giving enough? Are we worshiping enough? Are we reading the Bible enough? Are we praying enough? Are we joyful enough? Are we patient enough? Are we self-controlled enough? This passage basically says, enough! You live in a new era. We have this mindset often in the name of Christianity. We're subtly turned from true Christians into legalists. We hear voices on the internet, the radio, the TV, the newspaper telling us things we need to do. It tells you in detailed instructions about what you need to do in your marriage, about how you need to date your wife every week. It tells you what you need to do with your kids about having a better kid by Friday. It tells you that if you are a real Christian, you must read this book. 
and they're not talking about the Bible. They tell you you should be at church eight days a week. They tell you if you really love Jesus, you'll give to this project. And it's done in the name of Christianity, but these voices of legalism are all out there, and they're subtle, and they sound so good, and they put this burden and this weight on us. But effectively t- telling us to take a time machine, go back to the era of law-keeping, and measure our success before God on the basis of what we do, rather than on the basis of what's been done for us. So we come to a text like this, and in fact, the whole book of Galatians, and it tells us once again Christ has done it. A new era has come. And we find refreshment and true peace from the message that's here. But it also convicts us because we must own the fact that we slip back all too easily into the old way of living, of measuring our success on the basis of what we have done or what we do. And we dishonor our Lord by putting more stock in our efforts than in his atonement at the cross. And we need to turn from our faithlessness and turn from our self-righteousness and turn in faith to Christ. We find ourselves trying to mark ourselves by something other than Christ, like the church that we attend, the clothing we wear or don't wear, the music we listen to or don't listen to, rather than realizing that we've been baptized into Christ when we're clothed with Christ. And that's everything we need before God. So we need these verses to instruct us, remind us, guard us, and tell us those truths that we need after a week in the world. Where this comes in the context of Galatians is that Paul is addressing a church that has been bewitched. Galatians 3.1 O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The Galatians are under a bit of a spell. They've been told the lie that they need to keep the law in order to be right before God. They need to keep the Mosaic law. Basically, they need to keep Exodus through Deuteronomy as the measure of their success before God. And the danger is, as Paul says in verse 3, of chapter 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The danger is that the Galatians are now going to pursue perfection by means of their own strength, their own flesh, their own humanness, rather than relying on Christ and the Spirit. And so Galatians repeatedly, unrelentingly, shows us the superiority the necessity and the sufficiency of Christ and his cross as the plan of God for our redemption, sanctification, and glorification. What's left for us is to believe what has come. He has shown us in the book of Galatians most recently that law and faith are not really at odds in the plan of God. In fact, they collaborate together. In chapter 3, verse 19, Paul asks, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. 
In verse 21, he asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And so this has helped us to understand that God's law was put in place not in contrary to God's promise, but rather to emphasize the necessity of God's promise because nobody is going to be justified by works of the law. And so the law is there to show our inability and to lead us to Christ. The law cannot give life. Now, in verses 23 through 29... It develops the themes of the superiority of faith over law as a means of giving life and the necessity of faith over law. The section that we've looked at now in verse 23 through 29 is full of time references. And so it helps us to understand that there was an old era and a new era. Look at the temporal language in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This language is all pointing us to the reality that there are these two eras. There's the era before faith came and the era after faith has come. Also notice the repetition of language in this passage. Before faith, under the law, the coming faith, the law was our guardian until Christ, justified by faith. Faith has come under a guardian, in Christ Jesus, through faith, into Christ, put on Christ, in Christ Jesus, you are Christ's. Paul's not afraid of what he's writing, There's law, there's faith, there's Christ. There's no life in the law, there is life in Christ. This is basically telling us there are these two eras, before faith has come and after faith has come. We live in the era after Jesus Christ has come. Don't go back into the old era. But what do we mean when we say, or when Paul says, faith has come, or life before faith? It's not at all saying that nobody had faith before the pages of the New Testament. Paul certainly wouldn't argue that. In fact, he's just told us that Abraham was justified on the basis of faith. Abraham, if you don't know, is a character in the Old Testament, the Old Old Testament, way back in Genesis, the very start. He is a man of faith. And so Paul certainly isn't saying that nobody had faith in God or in his promises before the New Testament. But what he is emphasizing is that with the revelation of Jesus Christ, the object of our faith is revealed fully and completely. The one who brought the new covenant, the one who brought atonement in his blood, has been made manifest. He has been revealed, is what it says in verse 23. The coming faith would be revealed. Salvation has always been of faith. It's never been of works. But the New Testament emphasizes with even greater clarity, focus, that it is only by faith that we are saved. So as we 
unpack this text a bit more, we'll just divide it up into two categories. Because this becomes very personal, we'll personalize it. Your life before faith and your life with faith. So let's first look at your life before faith. This is not meant to be in the abstract, like you just get a lesson on world history. This is personal. Paul uses the language we and you as he even unfolds the scope of God's redemptive plan that comes across over thousands of years. It's personal. It's meant to be a reminder of history past, objectively speaking, but also history past in regard to your own life. Your life before faith is described by two key terms. It says again in verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned. Your life before faith is one that is defined by imprisonment. Imprisonment. Not a great way to describe your life. Not something that you would look on with joy. To be imprisoned, of course, is to be held captive. When it says we are held captive, it has the imagery of guards surrounding a city, not letting anyone in or out. It's the word that's used of when Paul was in Damascus in Acts 9.24, and the Jews were watching or guarding the gates day by day to make sure that he couldn't escape. He did escape. He escaped through a window in a basket by night, but that's beside the point. They were guarding it. As regards the law, you're held captive, and there is no window of escape. There is nobody in a, with a basket trying to let you out, just humanly speaking. The word captive or detained or imprisoned relates to the Roman principle of holding prisoners until the disposition of their cases. You're held in a jail cell, basically waiting the rendering of judgment. So it becomes that before faith was in your life, you're constrained from exiting the demands of the law. And in a sense, it's standing there as a guard keeping you waiting for the day of judgment. You're held captive, you're imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. It's like you found yourself in a room with no exit and the person standing guard at the door has a list of all of the laws that you were supposed to keep but have broken. And the only time that you're going to be let out is when you come out being detained by that guard brought to the judge, ready to be evaluated. That's the life of the law. It detains you. It imprisons you. You're held captive under it. We don't have to go into the details of Old Testament law and the details therein for you to understand that this is true. Just go to the Ten Commandments. And let that be your guard. Let that be your captor. Let it hold out before your eyes and your heart. Have you had no other gods before the one true God? Have you bowed down before that which is not a God? Have you taken the Lord's name in vain? 
Have you trusted the word or have you worked your fingers to the, trusted the Lord or have you worked your fingers to the bone trying to accomplish your own accomplishments? Have you honored your father and mother? Have you lusted? Have you stolen? All these things imprison us because you find that indeed you have not kept the law. The other figure that Paul uses to describe our relationship with the law before faith came is verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. This basically means a disciplinarian. The word that's used is pedagogos, where we would understand the word pedagogy. The role of this guardian is not the one who's the captor of you, but rather somebody who oversees the details of your life. The word's well known in its use outside of the Bible. It referred to uh, an adult male, usually a slave, who would keep watch over children of a household, basically ages 6 to 16, 7 to 17, that age range. And they would be in charge of that child to make sure that they did everything that they needed to, that they went to school, that they uh, got the training that they needed. This guardian did not teach them, per se. He wasn't their teacher. He was their disciplinarian, keeping them in line with strict discipline. Paul uses the word elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 4.15. He says, though you have countless guides, same word, in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then the imagery is elaborated in 1 Corinthians 4.21. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, which is what a pedagogos would use, or a tutor or a disciplinarian, they'd use a rod, or like a father with love and a spirit of gentleness. So the contrast is between a disciplinarian who has a rod or a tender father. It doesn't take much imagination, perhaps, for you to picture somebody in your life, either currently or in your past, who has acted as a disciplinarian to you. Somebody, perhaps, who had the ruler in their hand wrapping your knuckles telling you, pay attention, sit up straight, get to school on time, do your homework, clean up your room, wash behind your ears, wipe that smile off your face, put down that frog, your clothes are on backwards, be quiet, speak up, stand still, get going, go to bed, wake up, don't be so silly, lighten up. That's not just describing mothers, by the way. (laughs) There are disciplinarians. We know what they're like. In one sense, it's necessary and good for these children to be instructed, but in another sense, you can understand Paul is not promoting here a positive view of this person, promoting a view where you are so constrained that at every turn there is something or somebody telling you what to do. Now, as Paul compares the law to a guardian, 
He's not saying that the law was bad or wrong in what it demanded. But it is suggesting to us that if you put yourself under the law, you will find yourself at every turn a disciplinarian with a ruler ready to wrap your knuckles to get you back in line. The law as a tutor is like having an unbending referee for life. A referee in a sports game has his whistle at his lips, ready to blow as soon as the ball is out of bound, as soon as the foul is committed, as soon as you break some rule. The law as a tutor has its whistle at its lips at every moment, watching every step of your life ready to call the foul, ready to call out of bounds. As such, the law effectively imprisons you, detains you under its power. It exercises its rules with unbending constancy, unrelenting expectancy that you will keep every last point of the law. It will not bend. It will not break. It will not change. It is the standard. And at every moment, it has something to say about your choices, your words, your actions, your thoughts. And you will find that as it evaluates your life, you come up short, and it is just like one long whistle blow for your whole life while you're under the law. And as a result, you are found guilty and under condemnation. This law was put in place for a period of time. Notice again the language of verse 23 and 24. Until the coming faith, or until Christ came. This passage puts a definite time limit on the application of the law into your life. It is meant to be in place until Christ. It is meant to be there as the disciplinarian, as the tutor, as the guardian, as the captor, until Christ comes. Too many people want to jump over the law and straight to Christ. But friends, you need to go through the law to Christ in the sense that the law is what shows your need of Christ, your guilt before Christ. If you've never dealt with the law of God, you don't know why Christ came. You haven't the faintest clue. If you haven't spent time looking in detail at the Ten Commandments, either on the pages of Scripture or as it's written on the conscience of your own heart, and found that you are wanting in the worst possible way, You don't have a clue why Christ has come. 
The law had us under its thumb until Christ. The purpose is in order that we might be justified by faith. This is the whole argument of the book of Galatians. That when you put yourself under the law, you find yourself unable to keep the law. You find yourself needing to be rescued from the condemnation and guilt of the law. And so you look outside of yourself and look outside of the law and you look to Jesus Christ who came under the law, born under the law, taking the curse upon himself in order to redeem those who are under a curse of the law. And the only way that you can receive that gift of being declared right before God, of being declared not guilty, is through faith in Christ and by no other means. The law was put in place so that we wouldn't be justified by it, but so that we would be justified by something else, actually someone else. This is world history in the sense that there was a time where the law was dominant and then Christ came and now faith has come, but it also speaks to our personal life. We go through this. The law is there to discipline you, to instruct you, to lead you to Christ. But the ironic thing, for most of us in this room, we've come to faith in Christ. We know that he saves. We know he's the only one who can rescue us from the guilt of the law. But our hearts are so deceptive and so bent on justifying ourselves that we try to get in that time machine and go back to the era of the law. The law ends up being misused. Rather than using it for its convicting and condemning purposes, we deny its legitimacy. We say that I'll sin, that grace would abound. That's no good. Or we misuse the law by seeking to use it to justify ourselves. And this is the problem that Paul is addressing. The legalists. The people who come to the law and say that I am not guilty because I have kept the law. If you have that mentality, then you don't understand what the law is there for. The purpose of the law is to be in place until Christ, both historically and subjectively in your life. Perhaps I can make this a bit more personal. The law as a tutor or guardian is there to wrap your knuckles when you mess up. If you have put yourself back under the category of doing good enough in order to find success before God, then you will be finding yourself burdened rather than free, guilty rather than forgiven, tired rather than rested, Uneasy rather than at peace. Worried rather than trusting. Demanding rather than gracious. Bitter rather than forgiving. Hostile rather than loving. Sour rather than joyful. Impatient rather than patient. Overwhelmed rather than self-controlled. Unreliable rather than faithful. Hopeless rather than hopeful. Like a slave of a cruel master instead of the son of a loving father. If you feel that way, 
Your knuckles are being wrapped by the law. In this very day, Christ is calling you to trust in him, to find hope in the gospel. He's done it all. He took every burden, every sin that you have ever done and ever will do and had taken it to the cross of Calvary and left it there. Actually, no. He brought it to the grave. And that's where it is. It's done with. It's over. When faith comes to you, the sweetness of Christ's promises pour over your heart. You taste freedom from guilt, love from forgiveness. The rest, instead of a tireless race, peace rather than war, trust in someone who invites you to call him friend, one who always has your best interests at mind. You find that you have every reason for joy, every reason to wait for the fulfillment of his promises, every reason to know he carries your anxieties, No reason to panic because he's on your side. You have no reason to be any longer governed by a taskmaster who demands that you make bricks and gather the straw. You find yourself adopted into a family who has as its head a father who waits for his children to return home from their life of sinful indulgence, wraps you in his arms, clothes you with his robe, puts his ring on your finger, and throws you a feast. Get out from under the law. It will never throw you a feast. It will wrap your knuckles. We too often return to be governed by the law rather than our Father. So when you feel that weariness creeping in, that anxiety, that insufficiency in yourself, that worry that bitterness, that despair, that lack of hope, might it be possible that you're putting yourself back under the taskmaster and not living by faith in Christ, but rather by demands of the law? Remember what the law is there for. It is there until Christ. That's your life before faith. We've already started to establish it. What is your life with faith? Your life before faith is one dominated by a guardian and imprisonment, but what is life with faith? Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. When you follow the path of redemptive history properly, and you track it like a hound dog, you sniff the scent of the law, and it no longer leads you to self-righteousness. It leads you to Christ. A life of faith means that you're no longer under a guardian or a tutor. That's what he's just said. You're no longer under a guardian. There's no one wrapping your fingers with a ruler any longer. This is revolutionary. For you historically and personally. It's historically significant because as we call out the gospel to people, we're not giving them the law as a means for righteousness. We're giving them Christ. 
It means that the advancement in our world is not primarily an advancement in technology and healthcare. The advancement in our world is primarily one from being under the law to a world where Christ has come. It's personally significant because you do not need to define your relationship to God on the basis of you keeping or not keeping his law. It would be anachronistic for you to do so. The law was until Christ. A life of faith means that you are now sons of God. The reason we're no longer under a guardian, under that disciplinarian, is because, verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Well, your status now is not that you are some child being constrained by that disciplinarian. Your status now is that you are a full-fledged child of God through faith in Christ. To be a son of God means that you are one who is a recipient of all of the promises that God has to give. You are that son in the story of the prodigal who has come home and has received the robes, the ring, and the feast. This faith is pictured, and the sonship is pictured in baptism. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul is not now suggesting that we're saved by baptism, but he's so intrinsically ties our baptism to our faith that he can't really pull them apart because when someone comes to faith, a culmination of their expression of faith is to be baptized, is to show that they are submitting to Christ as their Lord, as the one who identifies them, and so they are plunged into the waters of baptism in the name of Christ, raised to nuisance of life in the name of Christ. Water just pictures that. But as you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Christ. And you've put on Christ like a garment. And your life is united to his and his to yours, so much so that as you belong to Christ, now you are considered sons of God. Full inheritors of every promise that God has to offer. This climactic event in your life as you come to faith in Christ is so significant and so significant corporately that one of the most well-known verses of Galatians and the New Testament is included here. Verse 28. Basically because you're sons of God through faith rather than works of the law, because you've been adopted into the family of God, there's neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This means that as we seek righteousness before God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, God does not discriminate on the basis of your ethnicity, your social status, or your sex. All have equal access through faith in Jesus Christ to the blessings of salvation a right standing with God, forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God as Father, 
the inheritance of the world to come, peace with God, peace with each other, the Holy Spirit. This means that as we gather together, there is to be no spiritual discrimination among each other. Some of you may earn a lot, some a little. Some are men, some are women. Some are of Irish descent or Greek descent or whatever descent. We give no preference on the basis of those things because in Christ we're all inheritors of the promise. Contrast this with what the false teachers at Galatia were saying. They were saying in order to inherit the blessings of God, you have to be circumcised. That immediately eliminates the Gentiles who refuse to be circumcised. And that immediately eliminates women. As Paul says, there's no man and woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. A new era has come. If you're wondering if there's no man and woman, then why are we all sons of God? Could be just children of God. But the word sons is significant because the sons were the ones who would receive the inheritance. And so, women in Christ, you are now sons of God. Not to distort it in any way that means that you've changed your gender, but that you receive the inheritance as well. This is the life and faith, not of works of the law. You get it all by believing in Jesus Christ. Verse 29 wraps it up. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This kind of wraps up what Paul began back in chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And here he says, if you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, if you put your faith in Christ and you are his, then you're also Abraham's offspring. And if you're Abraham's offspring, then you're heirs according to promise, not according to law-keeping. The life, of, the life before Christ is a life dominated by imprisonment and a disciplinarian. But a life of faith in Christ is dominated by Christ, dominated by unity, Understanding that you are heirs, not by works, but by faith in Christ. So the application for us is don't travel back in time. If you've come to Christ, don't put yourself back under the law, because in Christ you have all things. All things are yours in Christ. Continue trusting him. Rely on him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought Christ into the world. We thank you that we can have faith in him, that we've been brought out from under the law, that we've even been made new through Christ. And Father, I pray now that we would not boast in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It would be all of our boast, all of our trust. We would rely on him and him alone for all the promises that you intend to give us. Lord, when we seek to put ourselves back under 
the law. I pray that you would reveal that to us and we would let it have its purpose, which is to lead us to Christ. Father, even this week, as we feel the burdens and weights of this world in our life, help us to remember that we are free in Christ. We've been forgiven. Your wrath has been satisfied. Your justice met. Remind us that we are accounted righteous because of faith in Christ and not because of our works, our human efforts. O Lord, make us more like Christ. Make us trust him more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.